Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, that's our intro for our series in the book of Luke. And if you remember, it's because we're in the midst of our series and the title is Seek and to Save. And we stole the whole Superman theme there. So, um, and the theme of the book of Luke, we've talked about it over the last several uh, weeks. Uh, we'll be through the book of Luke all fall is the Son of Man. That's how Luke decides how God asked the author Luke to write about his son. We looked a little bit last week that the Son of Man is a loaded term. It's a term from the Old Testament that declares the one that was going to come, the Messiah that would save God's people uh, and reign on high. And so this term Luke uses, he's trying to show people who Jesus really is. And we talked about the whole idea of to seek and to save. And that comes from Luke 19.10. That's the theme of the book where Luke says, that, or Jesus says, and uh, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And that's what Jesus did. We were lost. Humanity had been lost. I mean, if you struggle to think of the lostness of humanity, you might not be alive. You, you may be asleep. Like, when you look around at our world today, the lostness of our world is obvious. That there is brokenness, there is pain, there, there are things that shouldn't be the way they are, right? Like we look and say, man, there's just things that it shouldn't be that way. And I don't know why it's that way. And it's broken. Well, well God chose to seek and to save us when the Bible says it was our fault that it's the way it is. That mankind's choice to want to be our own God, to, to ignore what God's word says and want something different than what he said continues not only to, not only was it the spark that created the forest fire, but we keep restarting the fires. Humanity keeps the fire going and burning. And God said, I know that, and I want to still come to try to seek and to save. I, I want to move into your life. I want to move into humanity in a way that cries out and says, hey, you need a savior. And we know this. I mean, we play the Superman theme, and I've said this numerous times in our church, but we love hero movies, right? I mean, they're making big bank right now at the box office. We love the idea of a hero. And, and if you're not one of those people, like our youth pastor, who doesn't like Marvel movies and, and you know, doesn't, doesn't watch them, um, it, which is fine. He, he can still be a youth pastor and not like Marvel. It's okay. I don't know if you know that. But um, it's also the same in romance movies, that there's a hero that's going to save me from my loneliness, from my pain. From, from the mess that I'm in, there's going to be this person who's going to come, my Prince Charming, my queen. And we long, we eat this stuff up, we buy it, we write about it, we sell it. We, it's constant because we are constantly deep in our heart looking for something to save us, someone to seek us. And God, for all of human history, has been going, it's me. I want to be that person for you. But you keep trying to put someone else there instead of me. And that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. Today, we're going to look at a question. And, and as we've been going through the book of Luke, I've just been taking questions from the passage, and that's been the sermon title. The questions that have been there that, that people were asking or that Jesus asks of the people, that's been the sermon title. And this week, who can this be? Who can this Savior, this one who wants to seek and to save, be? Who's it going to be? Isn't this the question that we wrestle with? Who's the one, right? For most of you who are young adults, it's, 
Who's the one? Who's, who's it going to be? And we look at that and we say, okay, who can this be? And that's the question we find as we dive into the book of Luke. So let's dive in. Chapter 8, verse 19. It'll be on the screen. You can follow on your phone. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I always encourage you to bring your Bibles. And my Bible, I can take notes on the side. And so I do that all week long when I read these passages. And so I encourage you to, to do that. You can also see the context before and after as well if you have your Bibles. Um, so here we are. It's Luke 8, 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him, came to Jesus, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. So remember, Jesus has started his public ministry, okay? He's been going now for a little while, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, about who he is, about what the role of God is in the world and who humanity is. He's been, he's been teaching and preaching and doing this. And remember, he didn't start till he was 30. So if you feel like you've like wasted your life, hey, Jesus didn't start you know, really, really doing the big stuff till he was 30. Like he worked construction for 18 years from age 12 to age 30. I don't know if you know that or not, but he did. That's the record of his life. And so Jesus is doing his ministry. He's called his disciples, these people that will follow him, which was a normal pattern back then that a rabbi, someone that was a teacher, would call some people that he would train and equip uh, and, and work with. And here they are, and they've been teaching, and now there are crowds that are following them, and there's this moment. And last week we kind of looked at this, but there's this crowd, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. And last week we looked at the word of God. That was the theme of what we looked through last week. How, how do we know what to believe is really the word of God or isn't the word of God? And here, Jesus, as he's wrapping up, you have this idea of who can this be at the door? Well, it's his family, right? They're like, oh, well, you'll definitely let your mom and your, your brothers come in. Like, they're just going to come right in, right? Like, they want to see you. And Jesus is like, who's really my... Like, I love that he asked these pesky questions, right? Like, this would be such a... If you are a Jew, an Israelite, and you believed you descended from Abraham, and you could track it back hundreds of years, okay... Thousands of years for some of them. You could track that back. This would have been such an odd thing for Jesus to say, well, re really, who is my mother and my brothers? And what do you mean, who is? They're at the door. Like, we know them. Like, you know them. Like, what do you mean, who are they? And Jesus is making a point. He's saying, look, when it comes down to the end, the reality isn't going to be who you know. It's going to be and to get into heaven, it's going to be a relationship based on a belief in him and a trust in him and what he says is true. That's what he's laying out there. And it wasn't disrespectful. He's just saying, well, who really is the brothers and mothers and fathers of God? Who really are the ones that, they're the ones that walk closely with God? And he's laying that out. And that's where this question, he begins to question people, us. He begins to ask these questions. Here's what he has, Luke 8, 22. One day, after he taught this, it says, one day, he and his disciples got into a boat. Okay, got in a boat. How many of you ever been in a boat? Okay, got in a boat. This would have been a little, like a fishing boat, probably. It would have been probably one of Peter's boats, because he was a fisherman, and also the sons of thunder had the, two, the other two disciples, James and John, they were fishermen too. So they had some boats around, and they get in a boat. And they're going to sail across and part of this is one of the ways they could get away from people was to get in the boat because then the people couldn't follow them. So sometimes if you need a break, you can 
go out and get in the boat, and then it's hard for people to follow you in the boat. And so they go and get, get in the boat. And he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. He just looks at him. He's like, hey, I got an idea. We're in a boat. Let's go. Let's go sail. Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Well, it says, as they were sailing, he fell asleep. So Jesus is tired. He's probably trying to get a retreat. That's probably why they got in the boat. He's sailing. I just need a break. Let's get in the water. Let's sail to the other side. You guys take care of it. I'm going to take a nap. Right? He takes a nap, and then it says a fierce windstorm came on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Now, you have to understand something. These guys have been fishing their whole lives. Their dads have probably been fishermen. Their grandfathers have been fishermen. They've probably been fishermen going back all the way till you could trace as far back as they could trace. If these guys are afraid of what's happening with this storm in the water, this is bad. This is no normal storm. This isn't your, oh, oops, yeah, we're going to get through this. We've been through storms before, no problem. This is like they are panicked for their lives and they are experienced fishermen. These guys know who they are as fishermen and they know when they've reached their limit and they have reached their limit and they are panicked. And Jesus is asleep. (laughs) I mean, picture the scene. He's in the boat. They probably didn't have an upper and lower deck in this boat. It was probably a one-deck boat. So Jesus is laying there. You're working your tail off. The sails are blowing. You're trying to just keep yourself from being drowned. And Jesus is just like peacefully taking a nap. Like, and you're like, dude, like, get up. We're dying here. Have you ever been there in your life? Where it seems like God's just taking a nap on you? It seems like the storms of life, the waves, the mess, the, the questions that you have, the answers you're not getting for those questions. And you're like, where are you? you just taking a nap? And that's exactly where these guys are at. And they literally, they say, master, master, we're going to die. And notice, can you imagine, for those of you who have parents, have you ever been woken up like that by your children, Right? Like, and you're like, what? Right? I'm not a good person that wakes up well. Like, it's kind of funny in my house. When I wake up, it's always like, I'm, I'm awake. Like, I don't ever like, oh, hi. Like, that never happens. Like, I'm, it is like full on, full out. When I come awake, I'm awake, and then I can't go back to sleep. Like, I, I don't fall back asleep well. Right? And so, Jesus is dead asleep, and they're not saying like, Jesus, hey, Hey, wake up. Um, the boat's rocking you back and forth. Your head's slamming against the sides. I don't know if you know. Like, they're like, Master, help us. We're going to die. This is a bad scene. This is a bad situation. And I love this. It goes on. It says, Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Can you... Picture the scene. So my kids wake me up, right? Oh, okay. Everyone calm down. Okay, we're good now. Like, to have that power in your home, right? Like, like the fire alarm's going off, you wake up and you go, it's good, fire's out. We're We're great. He wakes up, so they ceased and there was a calm. This was an instant. This was a, they ceased and boom, instantly calm. That's crazy. You don't just go from raging storm to that quickly. 
And then he looks at them and he said to them, and I thought this was going to be the question I was going to possibly use in the sermon illustration, but as I went through the passage, and you'll see in a minute, I, I used, who can this be? Because here's what it says. He looks right at them and he says, hey, where is your faith? Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who can this be? Who can this be? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. See, we just got done talking about obedience to the word of God, right? That's what this whole passage leading up to this was about. We just got done with his mothers and brothers and his family coming and him looking and saying, those who obey are really my children. And now they look and they say, even the winds and the waves will obey him. But we won't. When he says, boo, the, the winds have to be scared. They have to flee. But because of the ability of humankind to make choices, when God says this, do this, we can go, no. It doesn't mean we're going to get our way. It just means it's not going to go very well for us. And here they are, and they go, even the winds and the waves obey this guy. And they're even saying, who can this be? They're even struggling with the idea of who Jesus is in this moment. And so would you. So would you. This has never happened before. Someone just, whoop, and it, that's, these guys have fished their whole lives. I'm sure they had been in situations in the past where they had prayed because they were in desperate situations, right? Where they needed a wind to blow them across, or they needed a storm to stop and, and they were praying and asking God and there were probably times when God helped them and answered them and, and they thanked God and there were times when they got through it and they're like, man, God, thank you that you got us through it. You didn't stop the storm. But this guy, he says it and it instantly happens. And then the other question then becomes, then why doesn't he do that all the time? You see, they didn't wake Jesus up and say, stop the waves, stop the storm. They woke him up and said, help us. We need someone we can trust. We need, some, we need help. Help us. And then his decision, his will, was to stop the waves and the storm. It wasn't, hey, Jesus, wake up, because we know you're the awesome guy that can stop waves and storms, so wake up and stop waves and storms. And don't even think that they didn't think about this later and think about the Jonah story. If you were a Jew, if you were an Israelite, right, and you heard, like, the theme song that we played at the beginning, most of you knew, oh, that's the Superman thing, da 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 this story, if you were raised with the narratives and the stories the Jews and the Israelites were raised with, this, you would have remembered Jonah. You would have been like, oh, Jonah. Jonah, in the Old Testament, who was supposed to go preach the gospel, he was traveling across the seas, and he was supposed to go take the message of God's redemption, the message of God's good news of forgiveness and good news of salvation, and he chose to go the other way, and there was a big storm, and Jonah said, throw me overboard. If you kill me, if you throw me overboard, God will save you. What a picture of the gospel that is, that Christ is going to die for us so that we can be saved. But in this moment, he wants to communicate something. There's going to be a day when I'm going to die for you, but right now, I'm going to stop the storms and the waves. And that's exactly what he does. And look at both circumstances. The disciples have complete fear and terror, right? Because of the storm. 
And after God acts, they're not in the, high, in the boat giving each other high fives and whacking Jesus on the back going, that was awesome, dude. You're the man. Yeah. They're afraid and amazed again. They're even more fearful. It's like, that was just a storm. We got somebody in this boat we don't even know what to do with. And if he's really who he says he is, there should be some panic in our heart about his authority and what he says and, should, and how we respond. That's exactly what they're getting in this moment. It goes on, it says, then they sailed to the region of the, gener- I can never print it, Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When he got out, On the land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. Now remember, where they went, this place they went, is not a place that Jews would go. This was intentful for him, like purposeful for him to go to this specific place. Because Jews didn't go to this region. And so they specifically go there. And it says, he got out, and the demon-possessed man from from the town came to meet him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes... That means a naked, crazy man is meeting you on the beach. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a boat and I'm heading towards the boat and the boat parks and naked, crazy man comes running to me, I'm thinking, get back in the boat, right? Like, let's let's go the other way. Naked, crazy man's coming. That's exactly what you see here. And it says, when he saw Jesus... He cried out. Now, you just saw Jesus stop waves and storms. Now, naked crazy man, right, is running at you, and you're like, what is going to happen? And he, look at what, it's, what he does. He cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, loud, not like, hey, Jesus. No, he's like, he's stark raving, Rah! and he goes, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, you son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So as the unclean spirit was coming, Jesus must have said something to the unclean spirit or whatever. And now the spirit is speaking to Jesus through this man. I mean, imagine the scene. This Jesus that was in your boat that just stopped waves, now crazy naked man's coming, and he falls, and he's screaming out, and he's calling the guy that was just in your boat the son of God, and he's begging him, don't torment us as demons. I don't know about you, but that'd be a hard church to be a part of, right? Like, you would question some things. It would turn your world upside down to sit here and go, is, is this real? Am, Was this staged? Did he pay some guy to come out running and like fall down? Like is this, this is what is happening in the midst of this. And can I just show you something about this man? What's amazing that we forget about for this poor man who's been demon possessed for whatever reason. We don't know if he opened himself up to it. We don't know if there was a passage. We don't know how God possessed this man. But isn't it interesting that when you see demon possession in Scripture, it typically causes people to separate themselves from the community, not embrace it. Over and over again, you see these demonic people that that run, they flee. Judas, when he ends up hanging himself, he, he runs and he flees to isolation. Can I just tell you, that's the opposite of what Christ asks us to do. He asks us to run to him. He asks us to, to embrace him. He asks us to wake him up, to, to cry out to him, not to run and be isolation. 
But when Jesus shows up and the demons see him, they know the authority he carries. They know who he is and they respond. And Luke, it goes on to say, many times this demon had seized him. And though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into the deserted places. They would try to lock this guy up and he would break the shackles and and just take off. I mean, crazy what, what he would do. What is your name, Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them into the abyss. You know, it's amazing to me. We live in a culture. Just read this week. I was doing some reading and some research. There's a church nearby here I was looking up just to get some information on. I was looking at some of the things that pastor was posting. And he had, pastored, he had, he had posted a 10-part series about how hell isn't real. That there is no hell. There's no, there's no judgment. There's no... There's no eternal torment. There's no abyss. And it just broke my heart. I just, I thought, well, then what am I doing then? Hey, try the best you can. We're all going to the same place eventually anyway, so do whatever you want. This demon knows the truth. This demon knows that Jesus can cast them to the abyss forever. It's done. For, gone. They get it. They know his authority. They see his authority. They look at this and it says, don't, please don't banish us to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs and he gave them permission. It's amazing to me that Jesus has this conversation. He's like, okay, fine. Go into the pigs. See, they don't know that they're playing into God's hand, by the way, right? Like, you'll see this in a minute, but all of this ends up playing into God's hand so that Jesus gets glorified and his name gets spread, right? They're just looking out for their own interests, and Jesus is like, great, I'll put you in the herd of pigs. It's going to run over, and then it's going to be a big commotion. Everybody's going to come. They're going to want to hear, and then I get to share with everybody the good news. So sure, I won't throw you in the abyss because that's not going to help me get known. I'll put you in the pigs, and the pigs will run off the cliff. You'll die, and that'll help. <laughs> like, it's genius, and so Jesus says, sure, you can, you can get in the pigs. Now, where'd they go after they fell off the cliff and, you know, the pigs all died? I don't know. No idea. Did then they go to the abyss? I don't know. I have no idea. And it says, the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. You see this picture of of Jesus, and that the spiritual forces at work embraced who Jesus was. They embraced all the tenets of Scripture. They knew he was the Word of God. They knew he was the Son of God. They knew he had the power to curse and to condemn forever and to save. Now, they're not, they can't be saved because they've already chosen. They've already made their choice. The demons can't repent. They've already made their choice. They were given that a long time ago. This is where they are now. And they choose to... Try to stay alive at any way possible. And isn't this what you see people do today? We just, we just want to cling to life as long as we can, even if it's just to be thrown in pigs and we run over a cliff moments later. We're going to cling to this life that we have as, as much as we can, only to realize that you die anyway. That in the end, you don't get out alive. Nobody does. And so we've got to answer the question, who can this be? Who am I going to trust in? What am I going to trust in? 
He goes on and says, when the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported in a town and in the countryside. <laughs> like, can you imagine? He just ruined someone's entire occupation. <laughs> like, 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 he ruined their entire lively, livelihood. Like, they're herding these pigs, no problem, they're all there, and all of a sudden, you know, there's, hey, how's it going, John? Fine, it's good. And the pigs go crazy, bust out, jump off a cliff, and you're like, what in the world just happened? Like, <laughs> And so they have to go and tell them because they heard this commotion. They saw what happened. So they go. Then the people went out to see what had happened. The gospel spreading. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. There is no greater testimony, are you ready for this, than people worshiping at the feet of Jesus, dressed as God would dress them in his glory, in his righteousness, in his love, in his joy. And in their right mind. There, listen, there's no greater testimony you have than, than to be like that. Than to just worship and to be at the feet of Jesus and and to be dressed by him, to put on what he wants you to put on, the armor of God, the righteousness of God. When you put those things on, it's beautiful. And the world goes, what just happened? See, a changed life is a powerful story. And then when you see someone that was crazy that you couldn't control, you tried to shackle, and now they're in their right mind. They're sitting there having a conversation. Hey, how you doing? Hey, it's good to see you. And Wait a minute. Last time you tried to eat my arm off, I saw you. Like, what? It's crazy. And then it says, and they were afraid. There it is again. Every time you see Jesus really, when he shows who he is, the response of people is like, yeah, I want that too. It's like we're, we're scared to death that he might actually be who he really says he is because we recognize the cost to our hearts and to our lives and to our minds and to everything if it's true goes on and it says, meanwhile the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. They couldn't take it. You see, I see so often when you're doing ministry and you're building into people's lives and there's these moments when, they, when there's this fear, there's this panic that they have and you can kind of watch them go, I, I just can't. I'm not gonna surrender, I, I, no. And my heart breaks for those people because I know where it's headed. It's not headed to a good place for them. It's gonna head to a lifetime of inviting the spiritual forces of the world to battle you in a way that you have no ability to fight like this man. And it says... They were gripped with fear. Instead of awe, instead of worship, instead of reverence, they were like, we're scared of this being that's here. Leave us. Can I just be honest? In our culture today, especially our Christian culture, we are rarely gripped with the fear of God. But when you read scripture, it's all over the place. That when people met God, when God did miracles and amazing things, it was like, People were not like running around all happy. They were on their faces, panicked, like, oh my goodness, God is present. Let's worship him. Let's cry out to him. Or they wanted to get rid of him. 
Let's get God out of here. Let's get his presence out of here so I can have what I want and do what I want. He goes on and says, the man from whom the demons had departed kept begging Jesus to be with him. I mean, picture the scene. Can, can I just follow you? Can I get in the boat? I'll be one of your 12. I'll follow you. But he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all God, all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town all that Jesus had done for him. See, there's so many things that we want to do in life for God, right? I, I want to do this for God. I want to do this big thing. I'm going to do this or do that. This man's like, I, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to, no. I mean, can you, for most of us, if we were told that, that would spiral us into a depression and an anger and a frustration that we'd be like, well, then forget it. Not this guy. He's like, oh, okay. What would you like for me to do? Go back and share. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Obedience. He's just, he knows who this is. Who could this be? It's the son of God. I'll just be obedient. If he's really the son of God, I got to obey. So I'm going to go obey. I'm good. Thanks. And he goes. It's an amazing picture of recognizing who this could be. And the response is, I'll obey you, whatever you say. Goes on. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. They've been waiting for him, right? Like storm hits, they're like, oh, they're in a storm. We're not going out there. They get to the other side, and now they're waiting for him. Just then, a man named Jairus, he was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was at death's door. Picture the scene. This is a religious leader. The religious leaders have already decided, we read earlier, that they're done with Jesus. They don't want to listen to him. They don't believe he is who he says he is. And they're trying. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes are trying to convince the other religious leaders, this guy's not who he says he is. They're purposely looking for a way to trap Jesus and to get rid of him. That's what they're doing. And so this guy doesn't care. He's so desperate because he's tried everything. He's tried every healing method the Jews have. He's gone everywhere he can. And he falls at the feet of Jesus in front of an entire crowd of people. Religious people don't do this. You don't see the priest at the Catholic Church falling at the feet of people. He's falling at Jesus, which is a declaration it's a deck, you don't fall at anyone's feet unless they are a person of authority and they have power. That's it. When he did this, he's declaring, I say you're it. I got nowhere else but you. And he falls at his feet. It says, while he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. You can just picture the scene. It's like a Beatles concert. I mean, they're just, it's crazy. He's getting crushed. I mean, the disciples, they're like the bouncers, you know, probably trying to be like, ah, and they're getting crushed. And it's just, it's just like mayhem. Because again, people don't care about who he really is. All they care about is what they can get from him. But there are a few, like Jarius, like we're going to see in a moment, who get who he is and their response is very different than the crowds. Jairus falls on his face, but look at what this woman does. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years. Ladies, that's embarrassing. That's an embarrassing thing to be suffering from bleeding, and that's exactly what it's talking about there. For 12 years. Listen, they didn't have the products and the care that we have today. This was bad. This was embarrassing. It was considered unclean, which means she couldn't necessarily do certain things probably in the temple. 
This plagued her. It probably came along with cramps and problems and other things that are there. This was awful for her. She probably tried everything and nothing worked. It says she spent all she had on doctors yet could not be healed by any. Approached him from behind and touched the tassel of his robe. She's not trying to get in front of him and say, heal me, heal me, come on. She's just like, I, I think that he's so powerful. If I could, if I could just touch him, I, I think he could heal me. If I could just, just to be close to him. And it says, instantly her bleeding stopped. Instantly. Listen, someone who's bleeding wasn't supposed to touch people, and you really weren't supposed to touch religious people. Like, the Pharisees would, like, almost kill a woman for that. They'd find a way to stone and kill her if she did something like this. This was an act of complete faith, and she didn't try to do it on display. She was very quiet, very discreet. I just touched the tassel. She didn't grab it. Like, you know, grab him and say, heal me. She's just like, okay, I, I believe. It goes on, and it says... Jesus says, who touched me? <laughs> Look at this. This gets great. I love this. I mean, put yourself in the scene. Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, I love this, Peter. Peter always speaks up. I love Peter, right? He's just like, okay, I'm just going to say it. Nobody else will say it. Here it is, right? So Peter says it. He goes, master, the crowds are hemming in on you and pressing against you. Like, like who touched you? Like, who didn't touch you? Like, I keep getting bumped into you. Like, I touched you. John touched you. We all touched you because everybody's trying to touch you. Like, Peter's like, this is ridiculous trying to find one person who touched you in this mass crowd. Like, just stop. Let's, let's move on. Let's go. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out of me. Like, what? Well, I just saw a bunch of power go out before and you were concerned about somebody touching you. Why now are you so concerned about somebody touching you? It goes on, when the woman saw that she was discovered, my guess is at this moment, because she was discovered that Jesus probably looked right at her. I know the power that left me. And he is like locked eyes. I've already asked, did anyone touch me? And he's locking eyes with her. You, you gonna tell the truth? Did you touch me? Well, I didn't touch you as badly as the rest of them did. I just, just barely touched your tassel. I mean, that guy like jumped on your leg and Peter had to drag him off and that person ripped part of your hair out. And, like, it's like a mob. Like I just, I just touched it. I didn't touch him like you touched him. Like you could hear all the excuses that could be there for this woman. And look what it says. When the woman saw she was discovered, she came, here it is again, trembling and fell down before him. She's already been healed. She's not coming and saying, yeah, I touched you and you healed me. Isn't it awesome? She is just, she just is, she falls down before him and worships and says, I, I, I did it. I, I touched you. And it says, in the presence of all the people, look at what she declares, folks. This is powerful. She declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly cured. That's embarrassing. 
To say I've been hiding or I've been bleeding for 12 years and I don't want anybody to know about this condition. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my heart. I don't want anybody to know. And she is now in front of the crowd declaring publicly what happened and her bleeding. And then the crowd would have asked the question, if you were bleeding, what are you doing touching a rabbi? You don't touch rabbis when you're bleeding. The blood is sacred. She doesn't care. She, she's like, I have to confess. I have to tell the truth. I just, it's me. And look at what it says. Daughter. Remember the question we started with? Who are my mother, father, brothers? He looks at her. He says, daughter. Daughter. You're my child. He says to her, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The disciples in the boat, he looks at and says, where's your faith? They're like, who could this be? This woman says, I know who this guy is. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's the promised one. There's no hope for me. I can never worship in the temple again if I keep bleeding like this. I can never be whole. And he looks and he says, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for right there. Can you imagine the disciples? They just got asked, where's your faith? And they says, that's the kind of faith. Hey, guys, that's the faith right there. That's what I'm looking for, like that. Wait, we were in a boat trying to save you. You were sleeping. We've been walking around with you. This woman just walks to her cow, touches you, and then you make a big light of her faith. Look at all we've done for you. No, this woman believes. She knows who I am. It goes on. It says, while he was speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house saying, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. That's kind of cold. <laughs> right? Like, hey, your daughter died. Sorry, man. Uh, don't bother him anymore. Let him do other stuff because, you know, we need to get the funeral ready. Like, pfft. ouch. That's what they do. So when Jesus heard it, he answered, don't be afraid. Believe. Only believe and she will be made well. After he came to the house, He let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying, for she's not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him because they knew she was dead. Like, she's dead. She's stiff as a board. She's blue. She's she's gone. Like, we, we know how to tell if someone's dead, she's dead. There's no heartbeat. She's gone. She's been dead for a while because it took you so long to get here. And they just laugh at him. And isn't it interesting that we will laugh at God? Sarah laughed at God when he said she was going to have a baby in her old age. She laughed. And they're just laughing, saying, God can't do that. What have you laughed off in your life? You just laugh off. God, God can never do that. He might not. It's his will be done. But you can't say he can't do it. I'll trust him regardless of of what he does. And so he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she should be giving something to eat. Now he did that so they wouldn't think she was a ghost. (laughs) Because they were superstitious. They were spiritual superstitious people, right? Like, oh, she's like come back and she's like some different being now. No, give her something to eat. She's a person. Watch. She's chewing. There you go. She's a person. And then it says, her spirit returned, then he gave orders, and then her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. I always think that's interesting. He tells the guy in 
uh, the demon-possessed guy to go tell, and he tells them not to tell. I wonder if the reason is because he knew that they would, like, drag him off to a cemetery, right? Like, like okay, Jesus is, let's, let's, let's bound Jesus and take him to the cemetery and make him raise all of our relatives from years past from the dead. I don't know. I, I don't know why, but in this circumstance, he says, hey, look, don't, don't talk about this. Don't talk about this. And then summoning the 12, he gave them power. So then we move on. And, and now these, the disciples have seen these amazing things. And now Jesus summons them. This is the inner circle. He had multiple disciples. He had the 70. He had more than that. This is the inner circle. He summons the 12. He gave them power and authority over demons and power to heal diseases. That's what he just showed he had the power to do. So now he says, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit of this power. Here you go. I, I want you to have this power. Then he sent them to, look what he did. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Their mission was to proclaim. The mission wasn't to do great miracles and fancy stuff and make, you know, the world. No, it was to proclaim. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No walking stick, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and do not take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. In other words, don't use people. Don't go to one house for a while and then another one and another one and just use people. When you find a place, you stay there, you bless them, you, you stick it out until you're told to move on. You're not working the crowd, you know. And he says, if they welcome you when you leave that town, if they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Listen, that's your and I's job. It's no different for us today. Our job is to proclaim the good news of salvation to people, that God is who he says he is. He has come to earth, and, and we know the rest of the story, and he died and came back to life, and he's going to come again. He's going to come back. Messiah is going to come. That's what they're proclaiming. The good news that God wants to save, he wants to forgive, but you need to repent. They're proclaiming this, and they're looking at how they can serve people, bring healing to people, whether that's spiritual, whether that's physical, whether that's families, whatever it is, they're looking to bring healing, to heal the town, the community that they're in. I was here yesterday cooking from 10.30 to 4 o'clock for African-American students that the Banneker had invited from IU to come and know their history here in Bloomington and know that this is a place of refuge for the African-American and minority community in Bloomington. And it was amazing for me, to, the conversations we got to have and, and to see some of the healing as I talked with some, some older gentlemen about the history of Bloomington and the racism they experienced and as I just talked with them and I said, well, we're just here to serve. We don't know what we're doing. We're based mostly an Anglo church and we're just, we just want to serve you however we can. And the healing and, and the laughter, we were sitting there laughing and, together and telling stories about our families. And it was this amazing moment. It's like, that's the gospel. And I, I shared the gospel. I said, the reason we're here is because we just, we just want to make Jesus known. That's it. That's all. I don't have any other mission. I'm not trying to get this building for myself and hoping they, you know, give me a really good deal on it someday. And I, no, I just, I just, just want to serve. And it was amazing to watch some healing happen, even if it's just on a, on a little level. He goes on and then you have Herod. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. So Herod had John's head cut off, if you remember. 
because John stood up for biblical marriage. He did. John stood up for biblical marriage, and because he said, this is what God says about marriage, and Herod was not in a marriage that God said was, he was supposed to be in, Herod allowed his wife to give her one wish, and she wished for John the Baptist's head to be cut off. So instead of saying, no, you're wrong, you shouldn't, we're not going to cut head, people's heads off, she said, well, I want to please you, I love you, I care about you, and I don't want to be embarrassed in front of my friends, so let's cut John's head off. And they brought John's head on a platter into the party and said, look, it's John's head, ha, 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 and that's how John died, for serving God and being obedient to God. And so Herod says, now he's panicked because he thinks John's come back to life. Some that Elijah had appeared. Why? Jesus just raised someone from the dead. He's done these miracles and John's thinking, or Herod's thinking, is this John coming back to get me? Because Herod can't submit himself to anyone. He can't seek forgiveness. He's just always worried about being found out. And it says, some say that Elijah appeared, others that the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. He doesn't get to see him until the very end. And when he sees him, and he sees Jesus in the state he's in, he dismisses it. Because Jesus isn't doing any miracles and fancy things anymore. Jesus is brought before him beaten and bruised, dirty, spit on, as he's going to be crucified. And Herod looks at him and goes, yeah, that's, that's not really an attractive savior I was really looking for. I was looking for something a little bit fancier. Uh, you send him back to Pilate. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all they had done. He took them along, withdrew privately to a town called Bethesda. When the crowds found out, they followed him. I love it. Again, it's like the Beatles. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and cured those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said, send the crowd away so they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a des deserted place here. I love this. The disciples were not concerned about the people. Let's just be honest. I, I, they might have been a little bit, but my guess is they're tired. They've been traveling. They've been away from Jesus. They want to be, spend time with Jesus. They want to brag about all they did. They want to have this moment with Jesus, and Jesus is like, no, we need to serve people right now. Sorry, you don't get your life. You don't get what you want. We need to serve people right now. And so their idea, their grand idea is, well, let's convince Jesus that they're really hungry, which they are, and then, then he needs to dismiss them. Hey, you all are dismissed. Like, he's keeping them there. They're following him everywhere. Like, like please be dismissed. Like, they're going to still be around. And so Jesus looks, I love this, and he says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> like, like, can you imagine? There's this massive crowd. You've been gone for who knows how long doing what he told you to do. You get back, you're tired, you've been obedient, and then he looks at you and he goes, no, I got a better idea. You figure out how to feed them all. Wait, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like what? He told them, we have no money. I love this. We have no money. No, or no more than five loaves and two fish, they said. <laughs> we got five loaves and two fish. That's all we got. That's not enough. We win. That's what they're trying to do right there. They're like, see God, that's not enough. We win. You're not smart. We are. We got the facts. You don't have the facts. Okay, now let's, can we, let's go do what we want to do. And he looks at him, he says, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. 5,000 men. They were there with their families. The estimates could be 10 to 15,000 people are here. This is crazy crowd. This is like a rock concert. And it says, 
Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. He doesn't even tell them how he's going to feed them. He just says, have them sit in groups of 50. Okay. Like he doesn't say he's going to feed them yet. He just says, hey, how about you guys just have them sit in groups of 50? And then he says, they did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves. Look, he didn't tell them he was going to feed them. He just said, hey, could you just have them sit down in groups of 50? Uh, okay. And so they have him sit down in groups of 50. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke them. Sign of communion in a way. He kept giving it to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled and they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. I've always envisioned this as kind of like you pass the basket and the basket just keeps like bread keeps coming out of it. You know what I mean? Like, like it's a never ending basket. And you like reach in and you're like, oh look, another loaf. Oh look, another loaf. That's not what the story said. When you read the other accounts as well, they kept having to come back to Jesus to take it to another group of 50. Jesus is called the bread of life and his body is what was broken for us. They keep having to come back to Jesus to be able to feed the people. That's what we have to do. We have to keep coming back to the one. Who could this be? He's the one. He's the Savior. I have to keep coming back to him. I can't do this on my own. I have to keep coming back to him. They have to keep coming back. And can you imagine? They take a basket out to 50. And you know they probably didn't start with the furthest group, right? They're tired. They're probably like, okay, here's, here's your basket. Right, and they walk back over. Oh, there's another basket. Okay, here's your basket. And Jesus is like, no, no, I got, I got another basket for you. Here you go. Keep, keep going. I mean, there's, they're in 50s all over. And they're having to walk and come back and distribute this. I mean, that would exhaust you. You think you've got a lot of steps in in a day. This is nothing, right? Like their Fitbit's going off the chart. I mean, they're doing this traveling back and forth, walking. And then what's beautiful about this, look, look, look. What's beautiful is in the end when they're tired and they probably got to the last group and they're like, oh, finally, we gave it to the last group. We can just go back and did what he said. They come back and Jesus is like, there's plenty for you too. I still care about you. Thanks for serving me. Here's a, here's a full basket just for you. See, that's the kind of God, that's the kind of God Jesus is. That's who he is. When he was praying in, in, in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Here, here's the question, right? Who can this be? Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others. One of the ancient prophets has come. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Who can this be? Peter answered, God's Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. And Jesus strictly warned them and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Then he, must, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Listen, you only took up your cross one time. When you took up a cross, you didn't come back to get another one. You were dead. They killed you. This statement Jesus makes, Peter's like, you're the Messiah. You're the rock star. Woo! And he's like, okay, Peter, let's talk about what that means for your life. (laughs) 
Let's talk about what's really going to happen because I think you might have a different picture of what's getting ready to go down. I'm not going to overthrow the Romans yet. I'm not going to come in. So let's talk about what this is going to look like. And he says, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. You're going to have to pick up your cross every day the rest of your life. You're going to have to come back to me, fall at my feet, die again today, and get back up and live with my power. And if you don't do that and you try to live in your own power, then you're a walking dead man. Don't do that. Come and fall to me. And it says, I love this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit a man Or what is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? And I love that that he says himself. It's this idea of you don't even know who the true self you are is. See, that's what we're dealing with in our culture today. Nobody, everybody's talking about identity. And Jesus is looking and saying, the people that get it know that their identity is all about me, that your identity is found in what you believe about who I am. And if I'm not your identity, then you don't have one. You're going to make it up, and it's going to be awful for people because you're going to use them, thinking you're serving them, but you're not. You're just using them. You've got to find your identity in who I am. Who could this be? Is he truly who he says he is? And if he is, then he's worthy of my life. Then he said to them, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He goes on, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the father and the holy angels. He goes back to the word again. Are you ashamed of me? You know, I think about that pastor that had 10 reasons why hell doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, are we so ashamed of God that we have to like clean him up for people? I got to make God look better because he looks really bad in the Old Testament. I'm not sure what he was doing back then, but it wasn't good. So I got to clean him up. No, it's who he is. And if I embrace it and it's true, then that's who he is. And I have to, I have to grapple with that. And I have to fall at his feet and, and, and ask him and, and have a relationship with him and trust him. That's, that's what it is. That's what any relationship is. It's not what can I get out of this. It's, it's am I supposed to give myself fully to this? And if you do, then you get the whole ball of wax. About eight days after these words, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling with white. He also said just before this, which I didn't put up here, but just before this, he said that um, there'll be those that will see him coming before they taste death, and this is the moment they actually see him fully for who he is. His clothes became dazzling. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his death. Look at that. Moses and Elijah appear in glory and they're not talking about how he's going to reign and how he's going to kill everybody and how he's going to take over the Romans and how he's going to make everything happen. They're talking about he's going to die. I never, re- I never saw that before until I studied it this week. And I'm like, they were sitting there talking about, yeah, he's going to die. He's going to the cross. He's I mean, can you imagine the scene of them discussing this? And then it says, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. So they're in this deep sleep. Now they're fully awake and they see all of this. 
As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We're getting ready to head into the season of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why we do communion in these three weeks, is to think about when Jesus came. Because tabernacling was a temporary dwelling. Jesus came in a temporary body to dwell on earth, to be crucified on our behalf, and then be resurrected. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared, look at this, and overshadowed them. They became, here it is again, afraid. Every time there's this fear, and they entered the cloud. Then a voice from the cloud saying, I mean, this cloud is like coming on them. It's, it's taking them over. They're in this cloud, and they're like, this is freaky, right? And then this voice speaks, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's the one. Who can this be? This is my son. After the voice had spoken, only Jesus was found. They kept silent and in those days told no one what they'd seen. Let me ask you. Do you believe Jesus really is who he says he is? Have you made the decision to believe fully and to say, I I'm in, I, I surrender, I, I bow to you, I, I embrace you as Lord and Savior, Son of God, Son of Man, all the titles that go with you, and, and I'm ready to listen to you. I'm ready to surrender. I'm not coming to you trying to get anything from you anymore. I'm not coming to you because I got a plan that I want you to do. I'm coming to you because I am done. And if you don't come through, I'm done. And so I, I, I'm yours, and I'm going to embrace your family, your sons, your daughters, the church. It's a messy church. Every church is. But, but, but you've called us into community, not isolation. And you died for these people. I'll give my life for these people. See, that's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. It's that Jesus, we can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't get to heaven on our own. We can't do enough works. It's all about who you know. And if you know Jesus and if you've trusted him, then it'll be evident in your life, not only in the decision that you make, but in the way you listen to him. In the way you listen. Now, do we disobey? Sure. And God says, hey, the message of the kingdom is repent. So just repent, confess, come back to me. It's good. I forgive you. I love you. You're my daughter. You're my son. See, that's the love of God. And that's what he's trying to get them to see. And God, in this moment, they've been doubting. They asked in the boat, who could this be? And Jesus gives them a moment on a mountain to see his glory and to hear God the Father speak. And you know what happens? Not too long after that, after this, they reject Jesus. They're ashamed of him. They don't stand for him in the cross. And they turn away. And Jesus still loves them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I, I hope you know who Jesus is. And I hope your response to him is like what you see in these passages with people of faith, that there's a little bit of a, of a terror that when you come to him, you come to him with awe and reverence, but in that moment you hear him say, daughter, son, I love you. It's okay. Because if you truly know he is, that's how you'll approach him. You'll approach him with all the, the honor that's due his name, and you will approach. You won't be so scared you'll stay away and isolate. You'll move into the relationship. So let me ask you, have you made that decision Offer yourself to Jesus to say, I will pick up my cross. I'll die to myself. I'll have you come in and change my life. And if you've made that decision, how are you doing listening? What are some changes you need to make 
to make him Lord of your life. 